Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. And this is the Standing with Stones Antiquarian Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who've supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Standing With Stones monthly podcast number 17 for August 2019. And this month, we're talking about settlements. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are. There have been lots of discoveries recently that made us want to try to give an overview of some of the better-known prehistoric settlements and some of the inferred towns or villages that we know must have existed, sometimes from very scant remains. Yes, sometimes it's those little tiny clues that are the most exciting things, aren't they? Mm, joining the dots is one of the most fascinating exercises when you really get into details. Really love joining the dots. And once again, so much of what we discover when we try to join the dots is only made possible because of the advances in technology that we've been having over the past Isn't few years. that the truth? Isn't it the truth? Yes, but, 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 talking about settlements, it sounds easy, doesn't it? Straightforward, <laughs> you would have thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if we just do our homework, you know, join a few dots maybe, yes. we'll actually end up sounding like we know what we're talking about, yes? <laughs> Best laid plans. Well, that was the plan, wasn't it, anyway? So, really, pushing back the boundaries this month, we should be a story about our brains, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) Dear. Um, Yes. Well, it almost is, isn't it? Well, have you actually got anything from antiquity? I do. I do. We love it when something rocks the boat, don't we? Oh, yes, we like rocking the boat. (laughs) Well, we've talked about this briefly from time to time particularly with reference to discoveries about the Denisovans. But the conventionally accepted out-of-Africa timeline for Homo sapiens is having to be completely reassessed after a fantastic discovery in Greece. I have a feeling that the boat is about to be rocked quite a lot. (laughs) Well, yes, there's a Homo sapiens skull unearthed in the Apidima cave in southern Greece has been dated to 210,000 years ago. Forget about rocking the boat. I think we've got a man overboard situation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, once again, uh, it's only news because improved lab techniques are allowing researchers to reassess archaeological finds from decades ago. This skull was actually found back in the 1970s. Look, so a 210,000-year-old modern human skull in Greece... And our current model says that all living people are descended from a group of humans who migrated out of Africa 60,000 years ago. So, what? well, that's only um, 150,000-year blank to fill in. Uh-huh. Uh, is there anything we can do about that? <laughs> well, a little bit of yes, large amount of no. <laughs> Good grief. Well, the, th- the thing is that modern technology has revealed that there are quite a few Homo sapiens who've been found from periods long before the conventional migration date. 
And the problem is joining the dots. We don't have enough dots. <laughs> so it's a various homo sapiens. But we love remains. joining the dots. <laughs> we, we want more dots. We need more, more dots. More dots, please. <laughs> but see, there's various homo sapiens remains from Israel have been found to have ages of between 90,000 to 125,000 years old. Okay. There's a number of remains found in China have more or less the same age ranges, 80 to 120,000 years. Uh, there's one from Morocco is 150,000 years. Now, OK, that's still on the African continent. But, um, but the thing is that particularly, you know, the, the China skulls, uh, you know, it's it's a massive anomaly. You know, the confusion lies yeah. in the fact that all living humans do seem to have descended from that migration 60,000 years ago, yet we keep finding remains which show that humans were migrating out of Africa for far longer than we ever imagined and breeding with a number of other now extinct species of human. Blimey. So the 210,000-year-old Greek skull was found in the 1970s, yeah? Yes. So in that case, it wouldn't be a surprise then if we find that any number of other museum specimens cast <laughs> more doubt on the timeline. Yeah? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the only thing we seem to be able to say with certainty is that we did all come out of Africa, but we don't really know how far back that could have been or how many different species of human our ancestors reproduced with along the way. I was going to say I love science, but um, <laughs> mm -hmm. I like things simple, me. Yeah, I think we, we're long dispensed with simple, aren't we, really? Yes. Uh, we've got a man up here. Man up. Hey ho! Hey ho! Hey, well, on to the news. Um, yes, news. Well, what have uh, you got? I, this is very short and sweet because we don't have much information yet. On Monday, the fifteenth of July, the team working up at the Ness of Brogga uncovered a stunning Neolithic engraved stone with four bands of decoration on it. Mm. Some of the decoration has been worn away. Uh, they think while the stone is while the stone was in situ during its lifetime. Rather tricky for the team to unravel because the stone was found in structure 8, but apparently it was part of structure 17, which lies beneath structure 8. What <laughs> were we saying last month about things being built on top of each yes. other? Anyway, some of the elements are protruding through the floor levels of the, the later construction. Now you see, that's exciting. It, it makes such a difference when there are signs of individual hands at work, doesn't it? Yes, it brings it right down to the particular. But it didn't stop there because over the next few days they uncovered a number of other smaller pieces. Oh, wow. And, and one of them is quite unlike any of the others with rows of dots. Obviously, one can only suggest meanings, but it does look as if it could have been for tallying or counting. Interesting. Of course, it could just as easily have been where a stonemason was practising making dots on stones. <laughs> or maybe, yes, very true, very maybe true. it actually just looked nice. <laughs> anyway, anyway, since finding the big stone, it's been modelled in 3D and anyone can have a closer look at the uh, engravings on it on sketchfab.com. Uh, we'll put the links on the website. So watch this space. We'll bring more news on that and uh, as and when it arises. Oh, actually, um, news update uh, on that. Of course, just in the last few days, 
Um, they found some uh, drainage, I think. They did, under didn't one of they? The structures. Yes, yes. Man-made uh, drainage. Uh, no, it, nothing just, about it. But I just thought I'd mention it, you know, in passing. Seeing yeah, just, good point so too. I happened. mean, it seems to be a relentless stream of stuff that they're finding up there. It's <clears> wonderful. Right, what you well, got? Uh, well, I, I'm going to follow straight on from that with our old friends, the Denisovans. Oh, those Denisovans, the species <laughs> that just keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, what now? Uh, well, more tests are needed to be 100% certain that these are Denisovan, but they've been found in a region of China that makes it the most likely. Uh, it's two pieces of, of bone have been found in Lingjing in Henan province. Uh, it's about 100,000 years old, and these two pieces of bone are engraved with parallel lines. Oh. <laughs> Hold on, though. That's a bit major. Uh, yeah, isn't yeah. It? Uh, uh, and one of the bones has been coloured with red ochre to make the lines stand out. Oh, good grief. I mean, yeah. where do you even begin? Well, that is exactly what I thought. So I think just point by point, really, is yeah. firstly, it's important to reinforce the point that it's yet to be fully confirmed that this is really Denisovan, because we do know that modern humans reached China between 80 and 120,000 years ago. We were yeah, talking about that skull kind of uh, saying, yeah. a few minutes ago. Um but a non-modern human skull was excavated from the same layer, so it, it certainly looks likely. And when I say non-modern human, you know, it's one of the archaic humans. Yeah. This is very likely to be Denisovan. So that that's you know that that's where they're coming from at the moment. Secondly, it was always thought that modern humans were the only hominid capable of the kind of cognitive processes capable of producing abstract symbolism of any kind. Then it was realised that Neanderthals were doing it, but absolutely no other species until this. So not even our closest relatives, you know, bonobos or any of the other primates, produce any kind of art at all. So this is huge in terms of our understanding of human evolution. Now, thirdly... These lines are really considered. I mean, okay, they're not perfectly parallel, but it's pretty clear that that was the overall intention. And they've been produced with an extremely fine Mm. tool. The lines are really, really fine. Plus the fact that the colour was used to enhance the lines. You know, that's clearly done with a conscious intent. So the complexity here is surprising. And fourthly, Fourthly. (laughs) (laughs) only a few years ago, we didn't know any other hominins existed. You know, and then modern tech showed us that since Homo sapiens appeared, there were at least seven other hominid species on Earth at the same time. Uh, You know, we've got no idea how much they interacted or how much they may have influenced each other's development. Mm. But clearly the potential is running very high that we could be in for more surprises regarding everything we thought we knew about human history. Oh, it's just an extraordinary time for um, people examining this area you know, mm. of, uh, well, human evolution. 
And I think it's a really, really good point, actually, I've, I've come across in my researches as well, that um, when talking about uh, non-homo uh, sapiens species, its mm. tendency has been to underplay them in terms of their abilities, um, yeah. particularly Neanderthals. And, of course, um, they were far, far more sophisticated. And it's interesting that this is pointing up the same case with the Denisovans. The uh, understanding of uh, human evolution is in undergoing a revolution at the moment, basically. Yes. Uh, and, and the relationship that uh, each individual species uh, had to uh, one another, for the, you know, certainly over the past uh, 500,000 years anyway. Absolutely true, yeah. So talking of art and talking of symbolism, um, this one is just as surprising but for very different reason. This discovery comes from Italy and it seems... The world's oldest lunar calendar has been found on the top of Monte Alto in the Alban Hills, south of Rome. And I suppose you're going to tell me that it's not a stone circle? Nor a circle of stone. You're not going to believe this. Um, It's a 10,000-year-old pebble. Oh, come on. (laughs) 10,000 years old. So you're telling me it's an upper Paleolithic lunar wristwatch. Oh, I hadn't, th- I hadn't thought of that. Now you mention it. Um, let me think about that for a moment. Um, no. <laughs> it is, in fact, a pebble. A bit bigger than thumb size is probably a reasonable way to describe it. But it's, it's rectangular in section. Actually, imagine a box big enough to contain a human thumb. <laughs> it's a bit reservoir dogs, but I get the idea. Yeah, and it's engraved with 27 or 28 very fine lines spaced evenly along three of its four sides, seven on one, nine or ten on the next, and then 11. And it looks as if they carved the grooves along a side until they got to the end, then turned it and started again on the next, like counting the nights of a lunar month on a stone. Interestingly, each cut was made multiple times as if the owner was counting repeatedly. That is so evocative. So someone 10,000 years ago had a lunar calendar in their pocket, so to speak. was keeping count, yeah. I mean, there are Mm. a few other interesting aspects as well. The nearest place you can find this type of stone is some miles away, so it must have been carried around for a while. Mm. On top of that, it seems the stone had a history. Lab analysis, uh, don't you love those lab analyses, uh, revealed Mm -hmm. that it started life as a hammer stone for napping other stone tools, and then it was used Mm -hmm. as a pestle for grinding pigments. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Perhaps that could suggest that the stone was handed down through a family or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I know there's no way of knowing, but why would anyone repurpose a pebble unless it meant something personal? Who knows? Who knows? You know, we get attached to things, don't we? We do. As you say, it could have been handed down for generations or what, you know, or could have been just one person getting attached to a to a pebble. <laughs> yeah. We do that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, and ending up on the top of a mountain. You know, you have to wonder if it was lost. One of those artefacts it would be so lovely to hold, wouldn't it? So much silent history in the palm of your hand. Oh, oh I'm going to go off on one now. I know. Yeah. So many I unspoken know. stories. Yeah. Uh, yes. We like stones. Have we done that? I think so. Oh. I'm going off on my... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.
As you'll have gathered by now, the main subject of this podcast is settlements. Mm. Now, what inspired us to venture <laughs> down this path, Rupert? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those funny ones. I mean, we've been talking about stuff because obviously you're putting the podcast together. We're both researching all the time and we're looking at new stuff that's coming up. And, uh, and we'd both been looking at different aspects of settlement, but then suddenly, out of the blue, there was a news article about um, the... It, it's actually the Motza settlement in Israel. It wasn't named that as such, but this, that is the settlement they were talking about. Yeah, this did we mention settlement. it? We mentioned it in the last podcast, wasn't it? it was in, we, no, we mentioned it in the, the last live broadcast. Oh, yes, yes. Because it's very new as a as a news item this is very new and i do you know what? i can't remember who it was uh one of our community members yeah. who who asked us during the podcast what did we think about this new settlement that had yeah. been found in israel and uh it's uh on the back of that we had a little chat about it and decided that because of all this talk about settlements we should probably make it the main theme of the podcast because yeah. there's so much stuff that, generally speaking, <clears throat> people don't know. Uh, uh, and as you will, as you will see, neither did we, we because these, <laughs> these dots are, are never joined. Yeah. Um, this one is particularly ridiculous because uh, it's so it's been in the news. The settlement found in Israel that was home to. 3,000 people. And the thing is, it's not new. Um, th this site was actually found decades ago. And the only reason it's new is because people knew it was there, but it had never been excavated. Mm -hmm. They'd never bothered to do anything with it. And it's only because developers, I think they were actually going to be building a road or something, yeah. but there was some major development that was about to happen so they decided that they'd better send a team of archaeologists down to have a look mm. and uh, only to find out that it's actually the largest settlement ever found in Israel, I think. The largest found in Israel? Yeah. But I think there were claims um, beyond that um, and, you know, they were jumping up and down about the size of it and all the rest of it. But I think what? sort of led us on was then we were saying, well, uh, hang about. Yeah. Uh, what about Katalhoyuk? Yes. Um, which, to our memories, think, well, Katalhoyuk was much bigger than that. Not to not to diss the Motza settlement and the mm. fact that it may well be the largest in Israel found, but it's not that headline-grabbing when you look even further back in time to the few no. settlements that we do know about. It, it, it's quite telling, actually, that uh, so much of this is because of terminology. Mm. There, are, there are things that are known in certain archaeological circles, but they don't become widely known because, you know, it's just another paper is written and put on a shelf to gather dust. Uh, and, and so... There's, we did you, those of you that have listened to um, the earlier podcast, you know, we did the timeline. And during the timeline, we talked about places like Jericho, yeah. which was the 
uh, that was called or considered to be the earliest walled town. Yeah. But then in starting to uh, research specifically for this podcast, we find that there's all sorts of stuff out there that people never talk about. Mm. It's those papers that are just gathering dust. Mm. And, uh, and I've genuinely been shocked to find that all these anomalies, uh, you know, that we think of as anomalies, they're not anomalies at all. Mm. Civilization has been teeming in the Middle East particularly, for huge amounts of time that none of this ever gets discussed. Why not? Uh, I don't know. It depends where you listen, I suppose. And, um, and to, be, to be honest, we haven't discussed it that much because historically, you know, because of where we started with Standing with Stones, that we concentrated on stuff in, in Britain, in, in the UK, you know, and we're, and we're proud of, rightly, rightfully so, of our <laughs> megalithic heritage. But um, compared to the rest of the world, as far as culture is concerned, it doesn't go back that far. Mm. And in, in terms of sheer numerics and size, mm. um, they're well eclipsed by places who have their origins way, way back in time. Mm. Before the stuff that we're looking at, for instance, on the Ness of Brodgown, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, Stonehenge, whatever. I, I think that one of the really remarkable things that uh, that we've been looking at recently. So, so take you know Jericho as an example. You know that uh, that it, it's considered to be, or it was considered to be, the earliest walled town, and and by. Um, by 7,000 BC, so 9,000 years ago, it was yeah. already a large fortified town. Just dwell and, on that for a moment. 7,000 yes. BC. Yes. In Britain, we were still... Well, the thing is, we don't know, do we? Mm, I suppose not. Yeah, because there's nothing to... There certainly aren't any walled towns. And, and so much of it is interesting from the point of view that climate change has made such a significant difference over the millennia. And we don't know what uh, was going on in Britain because we're basically still all living where we've always been living. Yeah, You know, the truly ancient settlements, are, are they're underneath our towns. They've been destroyed by the development of our towns. Yeah. But you look at anything that's happened in, you know, and here we are talking about the Middle East, but that's because you've got these remains because People have moved away because of, uh, you know, what is now desert. Well, yeah. back then it was it, the Fertile Crescent. Yeah. You know, it was absolutely lush. Mm. And now it's all desert, so these things haven't been destroyed or built over. Yeah. Or a large number of them have A large number. I mean, Jericho is still... Um, An important Jericho town. Jericho is, yeah. is still a big town. Uh, but... The thing that I had no idea, I'm ashamed to say I had no idea about this at all, but in in looking at Jericho and then finding out, well, hold on, you find out that there's Tel Caramel, I'd never heard of it, Tel Caramel in Syria yeah. is the oldest known settlement, way older than Jericho, and the building uh, side of it goes back to nearly 11,000 BC, 13,000 <laughs> years ago. Uh, so if they keep on digging there, they've found 
artefacts, so stone tools and the like, they found going back 15,000 years. The, the building that yeah. dates back to 13,000 years ago, well, there's five towers. This is a, this is a, <laughs> this is a settlement with towers. Yeah. It's incredible. Do you begin to get an idea, dear listener, as to why I mentioned our minds having perhaps been blown? <laughs> that, uh, yeah. Yeah, the subject of uh, pushing back the boundaries should have something to do with our brain cells rather than anything in, yes. in antiquity. Um, but it's not just the dates. And it's not just the fact that there are, you know, that in Tel Caramel we've got the oldest settlement with towers. Mm. It is that each one of these sites, each one of these settlements seem to be throwing up, not anomalies per se, but different aspects of prehistoric existence that we hadn't really considered before. It's the kind of assumption that if you have a, a large settlement, say, such as Katalhoyuk, which we know we know by the time that Katalhoyuk was in full swing, that agriculture had been developed. Mm. So the assumption is that any settlement or large building that had been occurring in the past was based on the fact that People have become settled because they were now doing farming. Mm. But it isn't the case. Unless we've got our timeline of farming completely wrong. Unless we've got our timeline of farming completely wrong. But the evidence within the settlements tends to suggest that they're not subsisting mm. by farming, but tell Caramel. We're still back in the pre-pottery Neolithic. These are still hunter-gatherers who seem to have gathered <laughs> together in substantial settlements. And, and the other, uh, the other, one of the other aspects here is these settlements, some of these settlements had towers. Well, you, you don't put up a tower mm. unless you're looking out across the landscape because, well, why? Is it threats from outside? In which case, this is a long way back, and we're talking about sizes of population mm. that... Well, clearly the scale of population was a lot bigger than we thought. Uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, we, we have, how many people, uh, do you remember how many people, Katalhoyuk was yeah. supposed to be maximum 7,000 people. Yeah. No, it was, it, it was, they know that there were between five and 7,000. It would have been a maximum 10,000 people. Yeah. In Katalhoyuk. Bearing in well, mind that uh, Katalhoyuk, although we know of it very well, um, barely, what, 10% of it has been excavated? So, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. There's still a long way to go there. So Lord knows what else mm. is uh, is under there. But the, the Motsa settlement, the, the, the one that kicked all this off for us, the new one that's been found in Israel. 7,000 so BC. So that's, <laughs> that's 7,000 BC. Well, that was home to 3,000 people. Yeah. Which, you know, again, in contemporary standards, you know, that's still more than you get in a, uh, you know, it's more than you get in a, in a village, yeah. say. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if they were building towers, what were they looking out at? What, you know, what were they worried about? But do you know what? I mean, we could go off in so many different directions uh, with any of this. And I think one of the ones that, I would like to flag up because 
it seems to fly in the face of everything that we thought we knew. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly being faced uh, by my own ignorance and I'm not ashamed to <laughs> to say so. But it's the fact that we have always held Gebekli Tepe yeah. as this complete anomaly. Something so old that that you know, can we see any connections with anything else? And no, we couldn't. But when you actually look at some of these ancient settlements, like Tel Caramel, is considerably older than Gebekli yes. Tepe. Uh, Gebekli Tepe is not a settlement in itself. No, it's no. a monument. Yeah. Now the thing is, and you said this, uh, Michael, recently when we were talking about oh, it, yeah. that. Uh, uh, well, you know, it's your point to make, that Gebekli Tepe, stone, all these other things are mud brick. It's a question of utility. Mm. Human beings make things or create things out of what's available to them. The most important thing about Gebekli Tepe, or the, the, the standout thing about Gebekli Tepe, is it's very near to its source place for the stone with which it's constructed, with which mm. it's built, the, the local quarrying site, which has been used for millennia apart from Gebekli Tepe uh, as a source for this um, sandstone that the megaliths are um, made and carved out of. Mm. So <clears throat> in a kind of way, the important thing is the availability of the stone as far as Gebekli Tepe is concerned, Yeah, in which case it becomes less of a surprise that it is where it is, and less of a surprise that it occurs to us as an anomaly. Yeah, People use what's available to them locally. If there isn't any stone available, then you won't get any megaliths. Mm. And the other uh, a point to bounce off that is that when you start looking at these ancient settlements that are made from mud brick, mm. well, you think, okay, right now... The way we look at them, they're out in the middle of the desert, wherever. Well, yeah, but they weren't in the desert when they were built. No. They were in the Fertile Crescent, yeah. and and so water was in plentiful supply, and making a mud brick was well, it's just the obvious thing to do. Mm. So creating these massive settlements from mud brick, absolutely, that's the building material to hand. Mm. Uh, and I was shocked to find that there's about 200 of these tells, the name for the, the prehistoric mound settlements. Some of them are well, huge. Tell is the Arabic yeah. word for hill, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but some of these are hectares yeah. in size. Yeah. They're enormous. And there's, there's 200 of them. Mm. <laughs> and some of them go back. All right, they're not all. 13,000 years old. Some of them are uh, uh, six, 7,000 years old. But the point is that these settlements were everywhere. They were just normal. And we don't know of the ones that seem to be younger. We don't know if they were rebuilds or, uh, you know, we don't know what's underneath those. They haven't all been excavated. And each one of them seems to be its own surprise. Certainly as far as the settlements that we're mentioning in in this, you know, the list that we made up, each one is totally unique, it seems, Mm. um, and is of its context, is of its environment, and are testaments to human beings being extraordinarily creative, extraordinarily uh, innovative uh, in using what's available to them to create something extraordinary. 
or something, yeah. you know, stuff that at least worked for them. Um, another uh, settlement on our list uh, is a little bit closer to home because it's uh, in the uh, on the Danube in Serbia mm. is Lipinski Vir. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, we talked about Lipinski Vera in a, in a podcast last year, didn't uh, we? Yeah, um, can we date that a little bit for a bit of context? Uh, uh, we can. Uh, Lipinski Vera is, uh, well, it was inhabited from 9600 BC. There you go. And it seems to have come to a fairly abrupt end, 6000 BC. So it's like mm. two and a half thousand years. Yeah. It's a long time. Well, Lipinski Vir seems to have seen the transition from hunter-gatherer uh, communities to full-blown agricultural, um, yeah. full-blown farming community. Yeah. Also interesting that uh, that Lipinski Vir is uh, there's one main site, and then there's what is it, ten satellite villages. Yes. So it was, you know, it was fairly spread out in a in a very <clears throat> manageable way. There was no overcrowding. Yeah. The other thing is that when you really look at them, they occur as being far less primitive. Lipinski mm. Vir has an extraordinary sophistication about it mm. uh, in the way that each individual little house um, um, pointed at the uh, Danube, uh, to which it was very adjacent. Yeah. But not only that, the, sh the shape of the, each house was very particular trapezoid shape which yes. echoes the hill on the opposite side of the uh, the Danube, <laughs> which I forget the name of, which apparently has a trapezoid shape. Not only that, but there's a mathematical basis for the shaping of that trapezoid shape. Mm. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. And also, the exciting thing, you've got the extraordinary carved heads. Oh, yes, they are... They're, I mean, they're, they're such a distinctive style. Aren't they? Yeah. Um, and when you think of the age, you know that they predate any of the the sort of art and sculpture that we uh, we take for granted from Greece, for example. Yeah. Um, but they predate that by thousands of years. And um, just to a reality check, we're talking at least five thousand years before the Ness of Brodga. I tell you another shocker for me actually was. Uh, was another one of the Syrian sites. So oh, this yeah. is Tel uh, Sabi Abyad. This is 7,000 BC. Yeah. And it's the oldest painted pottery. <gasps> and they know that 6,700 BC, so you're talking about nearly 9,000 years ago, they were mass-producing pottery. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah, um, there's so many of these details yeah. that are just they're just kind of tucked away uh, almost as if they they're not significant and yet they're major mass produced pottery yeah. 9000 years ago so look folks if if you get the impression that we're drowning in a sea of um uh, <laughs> <laughs> detail and uh, information and uh, new revelations coming at us from left, right and centre, 
Yep, you're spot on. This is true. <laughs> Throw us a life belt, please, somebody. We need a bigger boat. All we're saying is that there's a huge amount to be investigated here, and I mm. don't. We don't know. We, we talk about. We, we were saying about uh, joining the dots. We're not too sure who's out there doing this. I mean, there may be people. There may be a book or books or what have you. You can find. There are certainly papers you can find. But um, whether they're being synthesized, whether things are being drawn together, whether anybody has found is finding through lines that link all these things together, mm. can trace the journey of farming and uh, agriculture from Fertile Crescent across Anatolia and up the Danube. Mm. Please let us know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we. Uh, uh, I mean, for example. Uh, we make the analogy coming coming right down into more recent history for certainly for Britain. So you look at uh, the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age, and this knowledge that certainly Wiltshire seems to have been the Salisbury Plain seems to have been the capital of Neolithic Britain, uh, with the absolute wealth of stone because everybody was using flint you needed flint on a daily basis to cut your meat apart from anything else that that was the big currency and then suddenly along comes the bronze age and people are starting to use metal and now because we're using metal import is a whole different thing which means all the emphasis goes away from the historical wealth of wiltshire and goes to the ports because we've got stuff going in and out all the time. And mm. that's why uh, London as a port, because, you know, the east end of London up the Thames, that is going to be an international port. And that's why it, the emphasis would have changed completely. Mm. It's all because of the sudden use of metal yeah. in our history. Um, so it makes you wonder how much... That would have changed across, you know, all these other places where we're looking at settlements going back into deep history. You know, what was it that changed apart from climate, you know, that made people move away? It's just just so much to be learnt from all of this. Mm. Also, another aspect that gets thrown up here is that because when we're looking back from the 21st century, back, back, back in time that we throw about these ancient dates with such abandon. <laughs> and But at the same time, like you do when you look through a telescope, everything gets compressed. Mm. And so we like stories and we like things to link up. But we forget that looking back in time, that the distance between some of these dates is substantial in its own right. Mm. There is no granularity in how we look at things. So the yeah, the the detail gets lost of how things may have transpired, how cities or towns may have failed and grown up again and failed and grown up again. There may not be the continuity that we would like to be there that creates a story. Mm. And our tendency to want, what I'm saying is, our tendency to want to make a story 
makes us make joined-up stories where there may be none. Mm. That it's just a danger. It's just a, a danger we have looking back through this uh, inferior telescope that we have back through time. It's it's a very good point because you know if you think about it, uh, it it's very similar to you know when, when we're talking about uh, archaic hominids. You mm. know that we're we're trying to join all these dots. And, you know, we were saying earlier, we need more dots. But, but, but in terms of, of <clears throat> settlement, in, in terms of, you know, artefacts, in terms of building, human beings, when they get an idea, they're pretty rapid in implementing it. Mm. You know, once uh, something takes hold, then it's, it, you know, it explodes. Yeah. But, the other, but the, the other side of that is that things can deteriorate pretty rapidly as well. Mm. You know, Nearer to our own time, if we think about the Roman Empire, how many, how many, you know, that didn't really last that long in these no, kinds of terms. No, it really did it? didn't. No, or any kind of culture like that. You look at the cycle, the breathing of uh, of cycles, and you've got between any one of these dates, you've got plenty of room for things to have grown and failed, grown and failed, you know, and uh, and and stuff not necessarily be passed on. Yeah. So when we look at these places, we've got to remember that we're just looking at, you know, it's being exposed by a flash of lightning almost. <laughs> I mean, what you've set me off on here is that we're looking at settlements that, so take Lipinski Vera as an example, yeah. that we know that that was highly active for two and a half thousand years. Yeah. Cattle Hoyuk, even longer. Yeah. And, and yet, Rome, when you think what the global impact of the Roman Empire, mm. and yet the the Roman Empire uh, kicked off twenty seven BC, and and it was done by three ninety AD. So you're talking <laughs> about a, you're talking about a few a few hundred years yeah. for one of the greatest empires that we know of in history, and yet it, it's nothing in comparison with, uh, you know, the longevity of some of these mm. settlements mm. that we've been looking at. So I think, I think that's one of the big takeaways of having looked at this and looked back at uh, this huge stretch of time um, through the lens of looking at settlements is that we need to retain a sense of scale even though we're looking at large time scales, we've got to remember that the basic scale is human. Yeah. And, and just remember the way that human beings operate, whether it be individually in small groups or in large communities. They're organic. They're vibrant. They're dynamic. They, they, they come and they, they go. And the, and the looking for connections that may be there, they may be there. But mm. sometimes a bit of a fool's errand, I suspect. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be looking, but I think the level at which you look needs careful attention. Yes, and it's that thing of having no presumptions either, you know, yeah. that, uh, that those links might not be there to be made. Mm. Um, although, do you know, it's back to the old Carl Sagan thing, isn't it, that uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Uh, yeah. So at, at what point do you stop looking for something? Yeah, yeah. It's a tricky one. 
And I, su- I suppose it is. I mean, the story is there, obviously. The story of connection, the story of, you know, humankind um, through the last 12,000 years is there to be told. Mm. Mm, but it's far more detailed than we can ever accurately portray it. Yeah. You've got to remember that. We can paint in broad swathes, but we can let our imaginations go as well, I think. Just write a novel, really. <laughs> sometimes yeah. I might get it right, sometimes I might get it you, wrong. You never know. <laughs> at least it'll have a beginning, a middle and an end, wouldn't it? <laughs> but uh, at the moment, we've got so many fascinating, different you know, qualities to all these settlements. Uh, they're completely different expressions of, uh, mm. of, of humanity, um, if you look at them. And that's our invitation, I suppose, is to take these names, Tel Caramel, Gebekli Tepe, Lipensky Vir, Jericho, better known as El Sultan, yes, Katalhoyek, yes. Motza, so many to, to look at. Go and have a look. Go search out. Look for archaeological papers, of which there are many uh, on these. Uh, you know, you can you can go to the original archaeologists who were responsible for um, uh, for for digging on these sites. Uh, yeah. Read what they've uh, written. There's so much wonderful detail there, which will completely blow your minds as mm. far as how long human beings have been creating extraordinary stuff out of mud, bricks, stone, and the mm. tools and the uh, monuments they've left behind. It's true. It's breathtaking what's out there. And uh, I, I shouldn't be shocked, but I find myself constantly shocked when, when, when something that seems to be so major and, and I didn't know anything about it... Yeah. Uh, and I think, well, I'm looking, so I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people who uh, don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping so. So, yeah, listeners, if you think, well, what kind of idiot are you? I knew all about that. Then do please uh, let us know. <laughs> do, do let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think with that, we should we should probably move on. We hope <laughs> that we've uh, you know inspired you to take a look. And I hope, in a certain sense, it was shocked you to a to mm. shocked you to a large degree, um, because as I was saying earlier, we tend to be a bit uh, myopic with our uh, view of megalithic culture and uh, uh, how wonderful it is here in the UK and what wonderful stuff we've got and we have. But before that, before that, and before that, and before that, there were extraordinary things going on. Yeah, absolutely, there were. Amazing, really. Hey-ho. All right, well, that about wraps up settlements, doesn't it? <laughs> I wonder what it'll be next week. Yes. Are we going to blow our brains out completely I think next so. Week? It's yeah. happening what more What will we more. find, actually? I don't know. Yeah. I think either our brains are getting smaller or more information is genuinely coming out and I can't make up my mind which of those it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> what was it the line from? The, the more I learn, the less I know? Absolutely. The Beatles, too true. it was John Lennon, wasn't it? It could be. I'll let you look that one up. Yes. <laughs> so, well, all of which brings us to question time. Mm. Anything arisen this month? 
yeah. Actually, this is something that comes up fairly frequently. And recently there was a conversation within the community about it. So the question is, how can you date a stone artefact? Because clearly, being mineral as opposed to organic, it can't be carbon dated. Well, it's probably a good time to say that anyone particularly interested in different types of analysis might like to listen to podcast number seven from October last year, yes, uh, 2018, when we gave an outline of many of the various techniques used in archaeology to date. Yeah, it's definitely worth a listen if you <laughs> if you want to know how we know what we know. Uh, yeah, but this one, the conversation arose after our. Napper in residence, Jeff Watson, <laughs> uh, had posted some more photos of his gorgeous arrow tips. And it, it was if Jeff dropped one in a field yeah. and someone came along and found it, yeah. how could they tell whether or not it was authentic? Well, I suppose the first thing is that the, there are various, you know, very obvious aspects to consider. For example, do the chips look clean and crisp or, or are they worn? Um, can you date the context in which they were found? Organic remains like bones or seeds buried in the same setting has been turned over by ploughing or soil slippage. So that, that kind of evidence will give you a good idea of whether something is really old. As for getting actual age, the best method is luminescent dating. <laughs> yes. Dating yes, by so, well, moonlight. Mm, yes. it, it's, it's true. So uh, there, there are two types of luminescence dating. There's there's thermally stimulated luminescence, TSL for short, and optically stimulated luminescence, that's OSL. And in a nutshell, minerals absorb and store energy from the sun at a measurable rate. So by stimulating them again, say by heating, you can measure how much energy is released and compare that with known levels. So thermal luminescence can reveal when an object was last heated, like firing ceramics in an oven, for example. And optical luminescence will reveal when an object was last exposed to light. So there'll be a measurable difference between Mm. the surface of a stone and a line scratched or engraved on it for example. Yeah, as we say so often, it's fantastic what we've been able to discover because of developments in science. Yeah. But equally, we have to be realistic about these problems and the simple fact that in the field, it's extremely hard to be certain whether something like a flint arrowhead is original or modern. And without lab techniques, if it has to be taken out of context, dating is practically impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you know what? I wonder how long it will be before there's a pocket field scanner. That you can tell Ah, straight away. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Sounds like something out of Star Trek, doesn't it, it, really? Yes. Indeed. He's 5,000 years Mm. old, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) It's dead, Jim, but not as we know it. (laughs) Yes. So, anyway, let's let's move on quickly before we dig ourselves a a pit. Yes, moving on quickly. Well, here we are again. It's time. You know what it's time for? Oh. It's time for. You took me by surprise there. I beg your pardon. Stonehead of the month. Stonehead of the month. <laughs> Come on, who begs the it this August month, Stony is Norman Crisp for the hey. lovely selection of photographs he's posted in the community recently. 
Didn't Norman post some pics from Britain? Yes, he did. And um, he's been getting about a bit too. Some lovely shots from the Isle of Arran and of Castlerigg, um, as well as the Brittany shots you mentioned. So super shots, Norman. Very yeah. well done. Thank you so much for sharing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well done. They were lovely pics. Excellent yeah. job. Well done, that man. Well, 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 well. Normally, at this point in proceedings, we'd be talking about whimsy. <laughs> or Mr. Soskin would be reaching for the grouchy hat. But we're, we're, we're introducing <laughs> a slight change this mm. month. So, uh, Rupert, would you like to tell everybody about it? <laughs> uh, yes, well... <laughs> We both come across this sort of thing all the time. Uh, but this month, I found myself reaching for the grouchy hat on a number of occasions, and pretty much exclusively because of shoddy journalism. Uh, and the thing is that the whole point of science is that it's meaningless without rigour and attention to detail. And the simple fact is that many people don't have the time to hunt out or read through academic papers. Yeah. So they rely on news items and trust what they're reading. So we decided that the usual whimsy section could sometimes be a set-the-record-straight section. Yes. And, uh, and if we come across too many, it might become monthly. And um, you never know, might contain whimsy along the way, more <laughs> often than not. So anyway, that said, if you don't mind... I want to start this off with the 4,600-year-old small pyramid-shaped island oh, yes. just discovered beside the slightly larger island of Kyros, which could be revealing the origins of ancient Greece. <laughs> yes? Yes. Well, Descalio, as the island is called, isn't a pyramid and certainly hasn't just been discovered. In fact, Colin Renfrew first went to take a proper archaeological look at it back in the 1960s. Obviously, it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and it needs to be said that they are excavating a wealth of stuff over there, but all the headline-grabbing stuff is total nonsense. Yeah. Uh, I, similar thing here. I, I saw the headline, Earliest Human Footprints Outside Africa Discovered in Norfolk. And now, anyone reading that would assume that another boundary had shifted. Yes. But the reality is simply that the sea has exposed a new group of footprints from a set that were discovered back in 2013. Okay. The, these are the same feet, the same age, <laughs> uh, which is still an impressive 800,000 years or more old, but it's misleading journalism to give people the impression that the oldest ever have just been found. They haven't. It, yeah, 800,000 more years. Well, amazing, isn't it, really? Yeah. Mm. And, 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 we both got a bit niggled by this one. Newsweek ran the headline, Stonehenge, colon. Neolithic people moved enormous rocks using pig fat for lubrication, <laughs> archaeologist says. I must admit, you know, that my, my first reaction to that was, well, well so what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and mine was that no archaeologist would make so bold a statement. Yes. Uh, so, I, you know, so I looked into who said what, and it turns out that Dr Lisa Marie Shillito, who's done a wealth of wonderful work, has, has written a paper 
suggesting that the huge quantities of pig fat which seem to be present at Durrington could have been used for greasing the sledges when moving rocks around. Now, she might believe it, uh, but it's doing her a disservice to claim that she said it was fact. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think it's a bit unlikely anyway. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, actually, I, I think that with the size of population there would have been on the Salisbury Plain, I think it's far more likely that they needed huge amounts of fat for tallow. You know, they'd have wanted a lot of lamps for a lot of people every single day. Yeah, yeah, I buy that. But on the other hand, it is possible. Yeah, you, you know what, though? I, in the spirit of ending the show with a smile, when I saw the extent of Dr Gilito's research, I sent her an email to ask if she had fancied doing an interview. Um, and something that really appealed is that she has her own blog spot that's called Castles and Coprolites. You are kidding me. <laughs> Castles and Coprolites. The mind boggles. It's wonderful. She does sound like one of us, at least. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, on that happy note... <laughs> Oh, before we go, uh, worth mentioning that, of course, as always, we'll be publishing the show notes with uh, links to um, all the stuff or most of the interesting stuff that we've uh, mentioned in the podcast. And those, mm. of course, will only be available on the Patreon page. So if you are already a subscriber to us on Patreon, you have access to those show notes. If not and you enjoyed this show and the other shows and the other stuff that we've been producing, please, please do consider supporting us by becoming a supporter of Standing Stones on Patreon. It can cost you as little as a dollar a month. What is, I don't know what the exchange rate is doing at the moment, but... It's uh, still a packet of crisps. Have a look at um, patreon.com forward slash standing with stones. Have a look at the different levels available to you and see one. See which one works best for you. There are different sort of perks and uh, benefits you get at the different levels, um, which I won't go into now, but uh, please do have a look. It just helps us produce more of this stuff and produce it better because it means we'll be yes. able to spend more time <laughs> at it. Well, yes, it does make a, a big difference to yeah. us. That is very true. Whether you think that's a good thing or not is a debatable point. But anyway, <laughs> that, my friends, our friends, is a uh, the end of podcast number, number 17. 17. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Time See, moves on. Actually, I'll tell you what, yes. before we go... Just yes. the very last thing. There's quite a few things happening, you know, in the coming months. I'm going on a dig um, at uh, Sisters Longbarrow. You are uh, with Professor Tim Darville, no less. Yeah. Yes. So I, I've done that. Won't I? By the time we convene again, uh, you will have done. You will have done. And then, uh, and then we have the September tour. I know. Oh my lord! We better buckle up. We buckle have. up. Uh, September tour. Yeah. Are you on it? Are you on it? Mm. Are you on it? Be on it if you want to be on it. There's still time to book, I think. We'll be posting links to that as well. We anyway, will. Anyway, final attempt to say goodbye and thank you for listening. Take care, folks. Cheers. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye. Bye.